to Conversations in Complexity. Uh, my name is Ross Upshur and I'm the uh, director of the Bridgepoint Collaboratory for Research and Innovation at the Sinai Health System where we're part of the Lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute. I'm also a professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine and in the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. This is the second of two podcasts examining the concept of evidence. So evidence in healthcare relates to justification uh, for holding certain beliefs. And we wrote a paper on evidence and justification in which we explored the ways in which uh, evidence functions. So you could say that you should take a treatment or you could, should do something for your health because I told you so because I'm a doctor and that's simply appealing to authority. Um, if you push me a little harder, I could say, well, I, I've seen it work many times, so I would be relying upon my experience. Um, I could also argue that, you know, we know from bench science that uh, this medication uh, interferes with a specific biochemical process that allows certain target effects to occur. But evidence-based medicine says that those three stances are not sufficient justifications in clinical medicine. You need some evidence from a well-designed trial uh, to justify this. Well, I took this also a little further and started to ask, if, you, if there is no defined property to evidence, does evidence have some particular qualities or characteristics? And I identified several. One is that we need to separate evidence from truth. Now, I don't want to go into a long discourse about how you define truth or what is truth, but an important element of evidence is that it's something that can be overturned by future evidence. In other words, it's provisional. Evidence is a placeholder of beliefs uh, that stands until something better comes along, so it's defeasible. It can be overturned in light of new conditions, and I'll explain this a little further. It's emergent, that is, it evolves over time. It's incomplete. There are very few things for which we know everything and have a complete evidence base. Um, it has certain important constraints, uh, both economic and ethical, and there's certain computational limits to how much evidence we can actually get, which leads back to the incompleteness. Evidence now is very much a collective property. It's not something no one person knows all of the evidence relevant to a particular field. It's got certain asymmetries and historical dimensions, and it's uh, something that's uh, subject to uh, market influences. So let me talk about the provisional, defeasible, and emergent nature. I'm going to be a bit autobiographic here. My first experience in healthcare was as a orderly in a community hospital in uh, Winnipeg. I worked on weekends and I worked the Sunday shift and Sunday my job was to take all of the people who were going to have operations the next day through what was then an elaborate pre-operative uh, assessment. Everybody regardless of age got a cardiogram, a chest x-ray, blood work and then I would take them to their room. And the interesting thing was the number one procedure on Monday morning was a operation called vagotomy and pyloroplasty for men with peptic ulcer disease and the ulcers uh, would you know grow and eventually their pylorus which is the first part of the small intestine would become obstructed with scars 
And they would go in and they would snip the vagus nerve, which tracks along the stomach that uh, helps with the secretion of acid. And they would open up the pylorus with the pyloroplasty to alleviate the symptoms of, uh, of obstruction. And then after that, they would send people home on a white diet. You've got to reduce your stress and you're only allowed to have boiled potatoes, milk and Wonder Bread. And uh, that was how ulcers were treated in the 1970s. Um, in the 1980s, when I went to medical school at McMaster, which was actually quite a hotbed of research in uh, peptic ulcer disease, um, the H2 blockers, cimetidine, came along. And this was a blockbuster drug along the lines of uh, Valium, uh, you know, diazepam, a decade before. Because the prevalence of indigestion and ulcers is so high, um, these H2 blockers, which by no means cured ulcers, but they certainly alleviated the problems associated with hypersecretion of acid. But then in the 90s, when I got to uh, public health and started to see bacteria and germs behind every disease, a pair of very enterprising uh, researchers in the hotbed of medical research in Perth, Australia, uh, Warren and Marshall. So uh, Warren was a gastropathologist, and uh, you have to think of all of the historical features that need to come together for this story to come true. He'd been looking at biopsies taken from endoscopic examinations of peptic ulcers, and he noted these spiral organisms in the uh, stains in the pathology, and he came up with the hypothesis that an infection was causing peptic ulcers. And of course, everybody discounted this. It's not possible. You can't, you, this can't happen. One, bacteria can't live in an acid-rich environment. This is just a silly hypothesis. And given they were so far away from the uh, mainstream channels of medical uh, research, uh, they discounted it. But then Barry Marshall, an enterprising gastroenterologist, came around. Uh, they found evidence that, for example, that uh, uh, there was an enzyme that the, bac the, helico that the bacteria, known as Helicobacter pylori, uh, elaborated, um, that it permitted it to actually break down the acid and replicate in the stomach lining. And in order to actually conclusively demonstrate this, uh, uh, Marshall took a flagon of, uh, full of Helicobacter pylori and swallowed it in order to uh, demonstrate that uh, he could cause gastric erosions uh, by exposing himself to the pathogen, thus satisfying Cox postulates and demonstrating that, in fact, uh, Helicobacter pylori was a causative agent uh, in uh, peptic ulcer disease. Um, by this time, I'm in public health. And this has a very happy ending because it was then quickly shown that a combination of three uh, antibiotics and a proton pump inhibitor, the new drugs that uh, displace the H2 blockers, could cure peptic ulcer disease and, and rid the infection. So vagotomies and pyloroplasties are very seldomly done now. Nobody uses H2 blockers for the treatment of ulcers. This is not to argue for incommensurability or paradigm shifts, but you can say, I mean, I can perfectly understand what a vagotomy and pyloroplasty is or what uh, H2 blockers do, but it's just simply crazy to use them for treatments because there's clear evidence that they've been displaced 
by superior treatments, and that illustrates the defeasible and provisional nature of evidence. Now, the story for H. pylori is not done because the bacteria has shown that it's developed resistance to one of the antibiotics. So, evidence is always unfolding. There's ethical constraints. There's some things we will not know because it's unethical to perform certain studies. And there's economic. I'll illustrate this uh, with the story of smoking. So I've already talked about uh, R.A. Fisher. R.A. Fisher is a genius by any standards. Uh, towering intellect uh, made fundamental contributions, not just to randomized trials, randomized trials and statistics. Anybody who's ever taken a statistics course knows about the Fisher exact test, the Fisher distribution, the F test. But he was firmly convinced that there was no relationship between smoking and cancer. And this was for epistemological reasons. And he wrote a very brilliant polemic called uh, Cigarettes, Cancer, and Statistics, uh, which I make all of my uh, epidemiology students. He published it in 1958 when the first Surgeon General report came out. And I'll quote from him, he says, It is not the fault of Hill or Dahl that they cannot produce evidence in which a thousand children of teenage have been laid under a ban that they shall never smoke, and a thousand more chosen at random from the same age group have been under a compulsion to smoke at least 30 cigarettes a day. If that type of experiment could be done, there would be no difficulty. And of course, that experiment has never been done, and that experiment will never be done, and everybody is fairly persuaded that there's a strong uh, relationship, uh, causal, between smoking and cancer. Fisher went on further to say, before one interferes with the peace of mind and habits of others, it seems to me that the scientific evidence, the exact weight of the evidence free from emotion, should be rather carefully examined. And he articulated three necessary and sufficient conditions that needed to be met before you could claim anything to be evidential. Randomization had to be in a randomized study. That study needed to be replicated, and that study needed to be adequately controlled. And his argument was that the uh, smoking studies ha uh, had not met those three uh, criteria, and therefore there was no evidence that smoking and uh, adverse health effects were associated. And he went to his grave defending that. And it would be a purely ad hominem argument to point out that he liked to smoke a pipe. But interestingly, Dahl and Hill, that's uh, Richard Dahl and Sir Austin Bradford Hill, two of the most notable epidemiologists uh, in recent history, spent a lot of their uh, intellectual life trying to get around Fisher's necessary and sufficient conditions, and they never actually achieved that. In fact, one of Dahl's last papers written was a lecture when he was still uh, struggling to uh, answer Fisher uh, that observational studies could show causation. And of course, Hill failed famously elaborated what he calls his causal criteria uh, to uh, help uh, make decisions about when observational evidence speaks to a cause. The other uh, important issue about evidence are its constraints. Uh, these are computational, and uh, David Naylor, the former Dean of Medicine and President of the uh, University of Toronto, in a very uh, lucid essay called Gray Zones of Evidence-Based Practice, talks about these computational limits. He says, another difficulty arises from the Malthusian growth of uncertainty when multiple technologies are combined into clinical strategies. Take two technologies and they can be used in two different sequences. Take five and the number of possible sequences is 120. 
And he says, furthermore, the elements in a clinical strategy are usually tested in separate studies, leaving few data on the chains of conditional probabilities that link sequences of tests, treatments, and outcomes. This is an incredibly important and often overlooked issue. So we tend to overvalue single strands of evidence, but they do need to be put into chains of evidence. There was also, and it's one of my favorite papers by uh, two neuroepidemiologists, uh, Saver and Caliphate, called Combination Therapies and the Theoretical Limits of Evidence-Based Medicine. And there they were thinking about Alzheimer's disease and treatments for uh, ischemic strokes. And they make the point that what clinicians want to know isn't how a disease, uh, an intervention is compared to a placebo, but how you compare them to any other medication. And they said, hierarchical serial clinical trials would permit identification of the optimum combination of these agent classes for Alzheimer's disease, but it would take 127 trials, 63,500 patients, and 286 years. And for ischemic stroke through 31 trials, enrolling 186,000 patients and 155 years. Now, it may be comforting if you're in from one point of view of knowledge to know that you will know in 155 years, but I can assure you that patients are not particularly uh, reassured to know that you will know something in 155 years. As well, these classes of medications, as per the uh, argument I made with uh, uh, Helicobacter pylori, tend to get displaced. In other words, before they're actually ever fully uh, compared to each other, a new class comes that shows superior effectiveness and everything gets sort of pushed to the side, and that's part of the defeasible and uh, provisional nature of evidence. So with evidence, we're not working with eternal truths, and so clinicians need to be flexible and nimble and critical when dealing with evidence. So just some last uh, concepts uh, that are relevant to the nature of evidence. There's an issue with what I'll call evidence equity. That is, there's asymmetries across different health disciplines. So some parts of healthcare have a very well-advanced uh, infrastructure for research, cardiology being notable. And it's not surprising that cardiology has an abundance of clinical trials. Other areas of healthcare, nursing, public health inspection, restaurant inspection, many other aspects of healthcare don't have well developed research. In fact, it's really hard to find people who are interested in funding research. So there's an unlevel playing field when it comes to evidence. Secondly, many healthcare professions or allied health professions don't have an established commitment to research. Now, we've started to, that started to be remedied as, you know, in the allied health professions and in nursing, there's been more commitment to research. But it's only in the last 40 years that the randomized control trial has become an important knowledge engine. And it's only in the last 10 years that systematic, 10, 15 years, that systematic reviews have become important in medical conceptions of evidence. So, again, there's a historical uh, dimension to this. The other issue, and this relates back to the steps of uh, evidence-based medicine, is that finding evidence can be a time-consuming process. And as a result of this, there's been a move away in evidence-based medicine from requiring practitioners to search for and independently evaluate evidence themselves and focus more on translational documents like synopses uh, um, and digests of evidence that are produced by uh, people who are expert in knowledge translation. So why is this important? Well, 
Sir William Osler argued that medicine is a science of uncertainty and an art of probability. And I think when we reflect deeply on what uh, Professor Naylor said, when we have this Malthusian growth of uncertainty, evidence is merely a tool that we use to try to tame uncertainty. And when you start to relate evidence to uncertainty, and you start to think about this from theory of knowledge, from the philosophical uh, dimension of epistemology, you'll realize that uncertainty is pervasive in open systems like medicine that use probabilistic approaches like statistics. So the goal of research is to reduce uncertainty, but there's always an ineliminable amount of what's called uh, uh, residual epistemic uncertainty that's irreducible. So evidence and uncertainty are related, and uncertainty is abundant in clinical practice and policy and health systems. There's a very lively debate about how we define diseases. For example, in mental health, uh, criticisms of the DSM approach, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, as opposed to looking for biomarkers or biological accounts. There's uncertainty in diagnosis. That's why we always refer to it as differential diagnosis. There's uncertainty about selecting tests and treatments or procedures. And again, back to Professor Naylor's uh, point, we actually don't know how they work in in concert. There's uncertainty about prognosis, about treatment effect, about how we elicit patient preferences and how we make decisions. So evidence is just one matter in which we reduce uncertainty and uncertainty has these various dimensions. One stems from lack of knowledge when knowledge is available and we call that ignorance. And one of the great things about evidence-based medicine is it tries to inculcate life learning strategies so that Clinicians are always looking to the literature to find out what the best evidence is to treat their patients. But there is also this sense in which uncertainty relates to incomplete knowledge, which will always remain incomplete. And research is required to fill and reduce this incomplete picture. And often at the time when decisions are required, appropriate evidence may not be available, or there may be disagreement on its interpretation. So. Evidence is a complex uh, issue. It's ineradicable in medicine. Uh, uncertainty will always be part of decision making. And we need to devote time to uh, help clinicians understand the varied dimensions of uncertainty. And recently, uh, with the concerns and interests of uh, big data and precision medicine, some people think that this will end uncertainty. And uh, there was an excellent editorial in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine, which uh, kind of reinforces a lot of the arguments that I've just made about how uncertainty is kind of with us to stay and all of these new technologies are merely increasing rather than decreasing uncertainty. So I want to conclude with a quotation from my favorite philosopher Charles Saunders Peirce who was uh, the first person to uh, coin the term pragmatism and uh, he was a fallibilist and he argued early on uh, that uh, our knowledge is never complete. So he says, fallibilism is the doctrine that our knowledge is never absolute, but always swims, as it were, in a continuum of uncertainty and indeterminacy. So all healthcare providers and healthcare workers need strong arms to navigate this sea of uncertainty and this continuum of indeterminacy. Thank you.